Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 21. This, plausibly, is going to help. Keltham feels more oriented by knowing what's going on in the background and what kind of surface effects to look for, being caused by what, even if he can't do math to it. Maybe it's a weird vestigial Dathalani security blanket thing, but Keltham feels less like he's flailing around in empty air and more like he's flailing around in air that has visible objects in it. I'm reaching the edge of how much stamina I allocated to spend on this. I think next the plan says I try to cast... Keltham has to think back on which spells he actually has. Shit. He didn't think to use Eagle's Splendor while interacting with Orlatha, which was almost certainly what that spell was for. Oh well. He can use the two spells, one of which is Eagle's Splendor, not as important here, and one of which is Owl's Wisdom. Then have security cast haste on him, then cast guidance and try to catch it, then try to catch Reed Magic. He thinks that was the plan they came up with this morning. Well, I get some spells cast on me and then try to catch my remaining cantrips. How long do Owl's Wisdom and Haste last, respectively? Owl's Wisdom is up to two minutes per caster circle, the girls chorus, distracted from their meaningful glaring at each other. And Haste is up to two rounds per caster circle. Right, so Owl's Wisdom first, then. Can somebody call in whoever's doing Haste, before I do? And somebody please show me the gestures to catch Reed Magic again. Yaisa goes to the door and opens it and returns with the nearest visible security wizard. Everyone else demonstrates how to catch Reed Magic. Keltham, somewhat hesitantly, tries casting his first mind-boosting magic that affects himself, given to him by his unknown but hopefully friendly god. The spell Carissa identified as transmutation, similar to the structure of what Carissa showed him for intelligence-boosting the one that seems more like it should be Owl's wisdom, going on either tiny intuition or sheer blind guessing passing itself as tiny intuition. It does something. That's eagle splendor, Meritzel beats everyone else to saying. It does charisma. This is truly odd. Something that Keltham has been doing his whole life, without really focusing on it that much, became weirdly much easier. He's aware of his posture, what his posture is saying, how he could change it to project different emotions outward. He knows what he could say to express these thoughts, or even to lie. But exactly because of that, it feels much more like any words he said would be something like a lie, a pose, at least until he became used to this state, and it became more natural. He could fling his arms wide and announce how overjoyed he is, and make it look real, or speak with quietly subdued enthusiasm, and make that look real. But Kelvin does not know, under this spell, how to do anything that is real. Eh, might as well go all in while it lasts. This is really rather odd, Keltham says with a more charming smile than any girl here, or indeed anyone in greater existence, has seen on his face before. But distracting from magic, I fear. I hope I am not taking too much of security's valuable time if I ask them to bide a short while before hasting me, until this wears off. No more than eight minutes should it be, and maybe less. Interesting how dashing gentlemen baseline rhythms are coming out in Taldane. He hopes it's at all accurate and not just silly. Of course, says the nearest visible security person smiling. The spell provides no particular aid in interpreting his smile, aside from making it apparent that smiles are a thing one can do in subtly different ways on purpose for subtly different results. 
I do not know if I will ever request this spell from my god again, and foolish as I am, I forgot to think of this contingency earlier. But does anyone have any simple exercises for me to perform, in the realm of acting and emoting? I'd gain skills and experience if I could, before this spell fades. Pretend to be a duke receiving your idiot son who just got in trouble for rhinoceros racing in the streets, says Tanya. Merixel's the idiot son. Meritzel takes this in stride and bows. Father? Duke sounds vaguely big and authoritative. Company president? Very serious person? Keltham shifts his bearing older and more dignified, and sorrowful with a hint of frustration. Son. Rhinoceros racing again? Really? It's not like last time, father. Last time I fully acknowledge I was irresponsible and caused a lot of property damage which was rightly taken out of my allowance. This time, we stayed off Queen's Avenue entirely and only knocked over one carriage. And furthermore, it wasn't my idea, Callisto challenged me, and I did not think I'd be doing right by you in the name you've honored me with if I refused and had him name me a coward. Keltham's total ignorance of vast amounts of context is almost completely unable to interfere with his acting momentum. Son, has it ever occurred to you that there is a certain irony, or comedy even, in letting yourself be put into self-destroying situations for fear of being called a coward? I name you Meta-Coward now. Meritzel heroically manages to keep a straight face at that. Father, should we embrace every injury to our name rather than falsify them? And what? Do tell, is this injury to our name, this proposition untrue, which could not possibly hold in any world in which you raced rhinoceroses, and so was decisively refuted by your acts? That I was afraid to race rhinoceroses! Son, your logic, while possessed of a certain local validity, lacks an appreciation of greater contexts. Are you afraid to take half your earnings and set them aflame? Well, not if they're in gold, sir. Er, right. Gold melts if the flame is hot enough. Anything melts if the flame is hot enough. Do you see where I'm leading with this, my son? You're going to light me on fire if I do this again? With Eagle's splendor running, Keltham doesn't crack up at this. I am saying, son, that like a sufficiently hot fire, the notion of proving oneself unafraid to do things has a certain dangerous generality. How about if, in the future, you prove yourself unafraid of refusing to do things, to prove yourself unafraid of them? Um, yes, father. Okay, pretend to be a thief casing a magic shop to learn its protections before you rob it. And, Ione, you're a shopkeeper who is trying to figure out whether he's going to make a purchase and whether you'll offend anyone powerful kicking him out. This is, of course, a substantial social favor to Ione, though there's no indication of that in Meritzel's gesture. She might have chosen a classmate at random. Meritzel thinks Ione has got secret connections and or magical bloodlines going for her rather than heresy, and Ione is going to pay for this later, but for this one golden moment, she'll take it for everything it has. Good evening, sir, Ione says graciously, standing up from her chair. Can I interest you in a slightly used mud golem? She gestures at Asmodia. It isn't pretty, but that doesn't mean it lacks all possible use. Asmodia smiles pleasantly and only slightly murderously. Thief? But a master criminal would be picking somebody else to impersonate. Somebody rich from context? Charming rich person? 
Oh, interesting. His thoughts are moving faster on this subject, too. My, you undersell your wares, I think. This is a fine mud golem. Look at its smile. What about this one here? Keltham gestures towards Pilar, and then, as soon as Ioni's eyes shift in that direction, Keltham takes several lightning glances around the room, before moving his gaze back to Ioni. Wow, that's interesting. He thinks his expression somehow did this thing where even if somebody was watching him, that would have looked more natural and casual than it was. Oh, that one is far more worthy of you, sir. The more he takes out on Pilar, the less he'll take out on Ioni, if Keltham happens to be a sadist. An Alaquata original, that one is, from Osirion. Have you ever had the pleasure of owning any golems of Sothis's making? Not yet, I must say. A recent shipment? Fresh as the sparkling morning dew, sir. If it's not too forward of me, can I ask what kind of golems you have in your current collection? Well, that is a bit forward, I'm afraid. We've hardly even met, and here you're asking me about my previous golem history. Keltham slides an inch forward, leans slightly, and smiles flirtatiously at Ioni. It seems like a good idea to practice this particular skill at all, before the spell wears off. Ioni smiles back. It does tend to help in providing a man with an additional golem perfectly to his taste, she says solemnly. Everyone seems incredibly entertained. Of course, Carissa herself seems incredibly entertained, while in reality this is occupying a tiny fraction of her attention, and who is she to say, really, that that isn't true of everyone else? Ione, who presumably isn't stupid enough to have told everyone she's a oracle of Nethys, is pretending. What, exactly? Something's up with an invisible assassin halfling who might or might not be watching this, and that sure is some distracting information to have, for that matter, maybe every single person here, except Keltham, who couldn't hide it, is having a day as interesting as Carissa's. The devil didn't promise the same offer, wasn't being extended to everyone in the room. Here she's been thinking she did something special, but maybe this is actually just the default outcome in a situation of as much interest to the gods as this one. While Ione and Keltham are flirting, she checks for illusions, which would be suggestive of whether anyone has been arrested and is being impersonated already. No one seems to be. A promising sign, if they've all made it through the first day alive, Carissa hopes she is not called on for improv with Inueno and, relatedly, is not at all in the mood to go on a date tonight. An hour ago, she was all delighted about it, but now she does not want to beat Keltham at a challenge of sexual cleverness. She wants—what does she want? To burn in the purified flames of hell and emerge perfected. Well, that's kind of kinky. Keltham's very weirdly augmented social presentation skills are telling him that he's screwing up, faster than they're telling him how to fix it. The problem isn't in his body's execution of the orders his mind is sending, it's that his mind is sending bad orders. Ioni may be acting interested for the sake of this skit, but in real life, well, he's not sure because everybody here is sort of hard to read, but in real life, Ione probably wouldn't be interested in the roguish gentleman template he picked up from some of his own previous LARPing. Even if that roguish gentleman template was being perfectly executed, and even if it didn't come across as a weird Dathilani trope that may not even exist here. Even if he's learning, he's probably learning the wrong thing right now. Keltham is used to this feeling. 
he knows that learning a new art often feels like screwing up, or even meta-screwing up the process of learning. It doesn't occur to him to be embarrassed about that happening in public. He clearly said that he was going into a learning and practice mode. Like, how would people here even know how to read if they'd never learned and practiced anything in the presence of another human being? He tries another couple of flirting exchanges, makes no headway on the problem of getting Ioni to admit when she's getting off work and leaving her workshop open to robbery, and then gives up. This scenario isn't working for me. Can we switch again? Keltham says, with more calm and confidence than that statement even warranted. I'm trying to hire some adventurers to clean the rats out of my garden, Asmodia says, and you're all desperate to impress me with your qualifications. I fought a dragon once, says Carissa instantly. Well, I was there while some people fought a dragon, pseudo-dragon, but still. They're really rats with wings, they are, and after that, regular rats don't seem so frightening. Unless they've got the plague, which would still be fine, I fought the plague once. Well, I was there while some people fought the plague. I once slew three dozen rats in single combat, when I was a gladiator slave in Katapesh, says Tonya. I once did that barehanded, says Gregoria. I used the corpse of the first rat to kill all the others. Reliable salesman, go. I've solved over 5,000 garden rat problems exactly like yours over just the past 10 days, Keltham says. Gladiator slave in Kata something sounds unpleasant and like one of those things that's hard to translate into baseline, but you hear a lot of things like that when you're a Dathilani in Galarian. Keltham decides not to put it on his priority list of things to ask about after an instant of internally sighing hesitation. Five thousand? says Asmodia. How do you find the time? Subcontractors, Keltham says instantly. And you can cut out the middleman and just hire the subcontractors. I'm one of them, says Pilar. He's the guy you need if you need to hire a lot of contractors, but not if you need to kill a lot of rats. Someone with that big of a rat-killing business has a lot of incentive to be going around releasing rats in everyone's gardens. How much do you trust him? I have solved a million rat problems just like yours in the last ten days, Meritzel says. I battled the rat god Lao Shu Po in Tian Xia, and by injuring her grievously decreased global rat problems by one percent. If I even walk near your garden, the rats will run scared. Good comprehension of perverse incentives, Carissa. Keltham wasn't quite sure how much of that kind of knowledge would exist in a place like Cheliax. As a full-service company, we also offer post-action reports on the root cause of your rat problems, Keltham says smoothly, sounding like a much more reliable and business-like salesperson than all his wild-eyed competitors. If you're concerned about our ethics, we can offer full-service ethical investigations of rat-related companies. Buy all three of our services and get 20% off. For half his price, Carissa says. I'll fight your rats, find whoever's spreading rats everywhere, and feed them to the rats. What if it's the rats that are spreading rats everywhere? Asmodia asks skeptically. Well, I'll feed the rats to the other rats in a rat pit of cannibalistic death and sell tickets and split the profits with you. My competitors talk a good game, but have you considered that they might actually be rats wearing clever disguises? For a rat extermination job, you want to hire a rat. We know how rats think. We know where rats live, and we know what rats fear more than death. For a rat problem, you want the best experts on rats. Most rats are too close to rats to see rats clearly. 
Our highly trained rat experts, the eagle's splendor, wears off. Keltham decides in a split second to try to continue and see how much of a difference it makes and whether anyone says they've noticed. Live in distant, isolated micro-cities, where they do nothing except think about rats and experiment on rats every day. When rats have a rat question, they come to us. You must be very busy, leading the world in rat extermination and rat research and ethics studies and rat infestation origin research, Meritzel says. Unless you know the origins of all the rat infestations before you start, since you're releasing them, something your position as the world leader in rat research would easily enable you to do. You don't want a rat or a rat researcher. You want someone whose footsteps make rats tremble. And that's me. Fight against the rat god must have gone pretty badly if you're now reduced to begging for garden assignments. I just hate rats so much I can't stop until they're all dead. What say we all compromise? We'll all do the job together so she has no other options, charge her 20 times the price, and split the revenue fairly among ourselves. There are nods all around. Fine, Asmodia says, flinging her hands in the air hopelessly, and then there are cheers. Are you going to need that haste, says the security wizard tiredly. Yeah, let me swap to Owl's wisdom, and then we'll run through it. Eagle's splendor only wore off a quarter minute ago. For what it's worth, I wanted to see if anyone noticed from outside. Do you only have wisdom and splendor and not cunning? Meritzel asks. I'd use cunning to try to learn spells. I guess wisdom might be better for just trying to understand the basics of how magic moves. Oh, right. I was thinking it might be wiser to try only one mental augment at a time on my first day. And no, my god didn't give me cunning. I think Carissa thought it wasn't a cleric spell. But if somebody else has it, you're the experts. Tell me which one I should use. In general, wizardry goes more off cunning. Cunning is cleverness, math, working memory, visualization. Wisdom is perceptiveness, wordless inference, noticing if your thought patterns are avoiding something. I have cunning, if you want. Key capability loading for catching a cantrip doesn't seem like cleverness and working memory, though, so much as perception and speed. Not saying you're wrong, just voicing my noticed confusion. Yeah, there's honestly an argument that what you're specifically doing wants dexterity rather than any of the mental enhancements. And wisdom is probably fine, even though in general wizards trying to grasp a new concept are limited on cunning. I can give him dexterity too, says the security wizard slightly impatiently. Keltham doesn't need arguments. He's too ignorant for those. He needs somebody more informed to give him the correct decision. Snap poll. Dath Ilani version. Put your hand in front of your face, then move it up if you think I should use wisdom, move it down if you think I should use cunning. How far you move your hand away from face level indicates the strength of your opinion. If you think I'm asking the wrong question, close your hand into a fist to signal defiance of the question itself, but answer anyways. Again, that's up for wisdom, down for cunning, fist to complain about the question. Keltham demonstrates by moving his hand in both directions as he speaks, and briefly closing it into a fist. The girls watch each other nervously and settle on a moderately strong recommendation for wisdom, which all hands then converge towards. An optimist might conclude this was because they're familiar with the theorems governing rational agents persisting in disagreements they have mutual knowledge of. 
a chelish person would likely interpret their uniform recommendation in the same spirit as their uniform smiles. Okay, those people just looked at each other and adjusted their votes. Later, he will explain some important concepts about presenting unadjusted first impressions to avoid info cascades. Or better yet, just closing your eyes until you've moved your hand into place. That seems like it would be a simpler and more robust rule for non-Dothilani. But security guy seems impatient, so for now he'll quietly hope that that resolution procedure had any kind of shard of law within it for aggregating their knowledge. At least Carissa picked an opinion, wisdom, and stuck with it, and she's probably the most expert. Keltham casts Owl's wisdom on himself, and Keltham the object snaps into focus to Keltham the perceiver. His first thought is that keepers would trade out of preference sexual favors or do crimes for this spell. His second thought is that there's so many thoughts he hasn't been thinking in the last day. His third thought is that this is a mind-affecting drug, one making him think that he can think better, and promising epiphanies, even if the rest of his mental processing isn't degraded. There are protocols trained for being hit by mind-affecting drugs like that, which you're supposed to follow even if it seems like you have better ideas for things to do while you're on the mind-affecting drug. It takes an additional effort and self-surety for Keltham to override that very trained and solemnly advised protocol, even temporarily. But he can see, even more clearly than he could at other times, that it would be stupid to follow standard protocol and run out of this room immediately. He knows he's more awake right now, and it doesn't matter how many people think they're becoming super awake as they fall asleep and into madness, he can tell the difference. He still needs to cast his spells and then leave this room of untrusted others. These are rules that derive strength from their unconditionality. There is some real sense in which even an extremely well-justified exception to them is breaking or bending a piece of the algorithm that would work better for other people the more unconditional it is, and those people should remember the same thing about that algorithm. That's even leaving aside where part of his reason for violating these hard and fast rules about behaving under conditions of mental oddity is that he died in a plane crash and has been in a magical world for the last day, which isn't the sort of epistemic state that he's wasting time. It's up. Dexterity, haste. The wizard casts those dexterity first and then haste. Keltham casts guidance on himself. He tries to catch that cantrip, too, just in case he can. Yep. Then it's kind of sitting in his hand, a little fragile. Now you kind of tuck it away like you're spinning it so it's all in some other dimension, Carissa says quickly. Aided by Owl's wisdom, Keltham is already over the shock of getting that far and trying to finish what he saw others doing earlier with his greater detect magic. The spell folds tidily away, intact. Practice until the boosts run out so he can catch cantrips in the future, or until he fails enough to be out of cantrips, or he needs to take the last of the owl's wisdom to truly think, is the obvious course here. So Keltham tries his reed magic, using the boost from Guidance, and catches it. His harem is cheering, though mostly silently so as not to be distracting. Guidance again. He catches the spell the next four times, and by then can feel that it's starting to enter muscle memory, no longer something that without a bunch of reflex enhancement he'd be desperately struggling to do. He'll start trying to cast Detect Magic using the Guidance boosts. Detect Magic and Guidance are the two cantrips he's plausibly going to need over and over and over. He manages it three times in a row before on the fourth the window slams. 
Security guy steps between it and Keltham casting something, and detect magic slips away in Keltham's instant of distraction. Keltham looks at the window to see if this is a room evacuating issue, some of what his students said about corn failure modes leaping awfully to mind. He'll also try to hold his concentration on detect magic, if possible. There are a bunch of overlapping spells on the window, but nothing observably entering through it. There is a dead bird on the ground outside the window. Most likely, security guy says without moving, it's just a regular dead bird that the Forbidden's picked off, of which there have been dozens in the last half hour. We have a team checking it out, though. Keltham goes back to practicing at once. He will continue casting Guidance and using it to boost its own next cast until haste runs out or catching fails, then practice more read magic without Guidance until another minute of that passes or catching read magic fails. He doesn't fail at Guidance before haste runs out. He manages six of read magic without Guidance before losing it. This was a great success, everyone, and with any luck I can start looking more at how magic works tomorrow once I can watch magic happening. Right now, though, I think I should quickly go off by myself and think for a few remaining minutes before the owl's wisdom runs out, and do that right away, see you possibly at dinner. Keltham is grabbing a couple of sheets of paper and a writing implement even as he speaks. No one interferes with him. Keltham moves out of the room even faster than he usually would, thanks to Cat's grace, also still in effect. See you later, says Carissa, who is officially the person with the rights to that line tonight as he reaches the door. Huh. <laughs> Indeed. And then he's out of the library and speeds up again, on the lookout for an apparently quiet and deserted, unoccupied room on the way to his assigned bedroom. He'd rather not spend remaining spell time to reach his assigned bedroom. But he'll go all the way to his bedroom, if he doesn't see anywhere that looks appropriate for meditation. And also he's already started thinking. Standard procedure for dealing with a mind-affecting drug that claims to produce useful insights is to write down the insights and see how much sense they still make after the drug wears off. While that's going on, you don't let people who aren't keeper-trained and keeper-oath-bound talk to you. You especially don't talk to people you don't trust, an awful lot. You double especially don't talk to whoever talked you into using the drug or maybe subtly guided you down a path that ended with that decision. There are known drugs that seem to have an effect of permanently relaxing your priors about whatever somebody says to you while you're on drugs, which in Dath Ilani terms is something like a date, rape of the soul. Keltham has had drugs that mimic the more innocuous effects that go along with those, and Owl's wisdom is absolutely nothing like them, but still. All of this is, in any case, advice you'd only need in the first place if you went to a shop of ill-advised consumer goods, or if a criminal dosed you. Dathilan does not recognize any uses of lysergic acid diethylamide, dimethyltryptamine or psilocybin within the mainstream of well-advised consumer goods. They don't do anything useful that can't be done by a high-ranking keeper just talking at you. The room right across from the library appears to be some kind of administrative staging area, but the room after that, some kind of antechamber, is empty. Keltham ducks in and starts writing. Translation spells are a thing and he's not sure how that interacts with cracking the kitty's substitution cipher he has memorized for writing non-readable notes to himself in RPGs and so on. Instead, he's going to write down some cultural references from his homeworld and hope that there's no version of a cultural translation spell that reads through those. Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra, as it were. He doesn't have time to think through very much. The first priority is just to write out all the things he hasn't been thinking. Notes to himself to hang the thoughts upon. 
to be followed up later. Blue and orange is the first thing he scratches out. There's a constant drumbeat of hints that the people around him operate on a very alien and possibly inhumane morality, and he's been saying things to himself, like Carissa was probably making a joke he failed to get when she talked about tossing the rats into a pit to cannibalize each other and selling tickets to that like people would pay to see it. There's a whole history of little pings like that, and his brain pushing back at the dissonance with, maybe it was a joke I didn't get. And he can see that now, while he's got Owl's wisdom running. Subverted true man show, he writes out next. The girls all wore permanently cheerful expressions during class. Meritzel and Ione and everyone else didn't read as any less genuine to him than their usual selves read while they were acting out routines, like they were all experienced actresses, like they were all already acting. But they're not running a well-designed, full, immersive reality TV show trope on him either. If they were really such good actresses with smart people and smart scripts behind them, they wouldn't be giving that away by wearing permanently cheerful smiles during class or by not acting awkward when they were called on to act out new, weird scenarios. They're not trying to prevent him from realizing that they all have and are using acting abilities like he got from his charisma boost, which, if they were actually constructing a false reality around him, would be the first thing they'd try to avoid him knowing. Keltham also makes a note in the back of his mind, not for the first time today, that if they don't get adequate governance support and don't end up with more urgent priorities, inventing ballpoint pens sure seems like it should be a moneymaker. The next part is hard for him to write. It feels like it's a betrayal of the person that he'll be when this temporary boost wears off to think about this part, to write down the anchor for it. But he can't unsee it, and it's already too late. There is a commonly held wisdom, in Dathilan, about the way a human mind is put together, that it is a thing made of little subtle tensions and balances and internal compromises. The human mind being the limited thing that it is, these balances form around your current level of ability to see into yourself and see the implications of what you already know, or not see them, as the case may be. The reason why not everybody runs off to learn all they can from keepers, the reason why not everyone asks a keeper to tell them all the answers about themselves is that this would bring parts of themselves into conflict that were previously living in a more agreeable truce of ignorance. You might not survive as yourself if you could see yourself. Those who say, that which can be destroyed by the truth should be, may continue to walk the path from there. But not uncommonly, even somebody who sets out along that path turns back at some point and well short of becoming a keeper. It's not a trivial price, higher for some than others, and there is varying willingness to pay. A lot of the reason why keepers exist as what they are is that the people who have large comparative advantages there, in how little they'll be hurt by knowing themselves, or how much they really internally want to keep going anyways, are conceived of by larger society as being paid to throw themselves on that grenade, so others don't have to. And if, to some keepers, it doesn't feel like much of a grenade at all, they understand that their case is not typical and are grateful for winning the comparative advantage lottery. Going up by two local standard deviations in whatever it is that Owl's wisdom enhances is something that the current structures of Keltham's personality were never built to withstand. He knows from up here, because he couldn't stop himself from glancing in that direction, that in Dath Ilan, he would never have had his 144 children. He would have tried to be special 
and failed and been sad and then maybe gotten an ordinary plus zero, eight SD job and either paid for a child out of that or decided he was too strange and unhappy to have one. It's not considered necessary for somebody Keltham's age to go and pay a keeper to tell them exactly what the probabilities are about something like that. It's not so much that people are encouraged to lie to themselves, reality forbid, but that people are told it's okay for them not to shove themselves as hard as possible down the pathway that will dissolve the mistakes their current personality is built out of. That's what keepers are for. They do it so that not everybody else has to. There are grown-ups around in civilization who can and will speak up if the people less mature are about to make some terrible mistake out of their blindness. So you do not need to rush ahead to be a keeper, if you'd rather be a little less coherent, a little more yourself and your mistakes and your contradictions, a little more human, for a time. But it's too late now, for Keltham to go back, because also in the common wisdom is that once you see what it is, you weren't letting yourself see. Once you know which mistakes your personality is founded upon, or even if you're trying hard not to know it, to the point where it's becoming a big internal battle, well, at that point, you're supposed to give it up. It means that, well, sorry, you are that smart now. Like it or not, you are that wise. You did grow up that much, whether or not you wish to stay a child for longer. It's time to move on. And the part where he was going to fail at his life's goals, in Dath Elan, isn't even the important thing that he can't help but see now, about himself. Realize now, at this level of wisdom. There was a question asked once of some bright children, among whom Kelton was numbered, in a class where he had seemed to be among the oldest and worst performers, a class assembled of kids who were faster than Kelton. And young Kelton had, by that time, already seen through some of the lies told to children. He was past his experience with finding that lightly injured adult on his way home. He had learned that children are sometimes put into contrived situations meant to teach them things. Keltham was suspicious already before the key moment. He had already guessed that he was meant to learn in this class something about what it feels like to be surrounded by others faster and more knowledgeable and even younger than you are. But in this guess Keltham proved to be wrong. He was not the one there who was to learn a lesson that day. The class was on self-integrity and relatedly morals, a class taught directly by a watcher over children, not entrusted to older children at all. And the watcher told the class a parable about an adult coming across a child who'd somehow bypassed the various safeguards around a wilderness area and fallen into a muddy pond and seemed to be showing signs of drowning, for they'd already been told then what drowning looked like. The water in this parable didn't look like it would be over their own adult heads. But I doubt in the parable, they'd just bought some incredibly expensive clothing, costing dozens of their own labour hours, and less resilient than usual, that would be ruined by the muddy water. And the watcher asked the class if they thought it was right to save the child, at the cost of ruining their clothing. Everyone in there moved their hand to the yes position, of course. Except Keltham, who by this point had already decided quite clearly who he was, and who simply closed his hand into a fist, otherwise saying neither yes nor no to the question, defying it entirely. The watcher asked him to explain, and Keltham said that it seemed to him that it was okay for an adult to take an extra quarter minute to strip off all their super expensive clothing and then jump in to save the child. The watcher invited the other children to argue with Keltham about that, which they did, though Keltham's first defence, that his utility function was what it was, had not been a friendly one or inviting a further argument. 
but they did eventually convince Keltham that, especially if you weren't sure you could call in other help, or get attention or successfully drag the child's body towards help, if that child actually did drown, meaning the child's true life was at stake. Then it would make sense to jump in right away, not take the extra risk of waiting another quarter minute to strip off your clothes and bill the child's parents' insurance for the cost. Or at least, that was where Keltham shifted his position, in the face of that argumentative pressure. Some kids at that point questioned the watcher about this actually being a pretty good point, and why wouldn't anyone just bill the child's parents' insurance? To which the watcher asked them to consider hypothetically the case where insurance refused to pay out in cases like that, because it would be too easy for people to set up accidents, letting them bill insurances. Not that this precaution had proven to be necessary in real life, of course. But the watcher asked them to consider the least convenient possible world, where insurance companies, and even parents, did need to reason like that. Because there'd proven to be too many master criminals setting up children at risk of true death from drowning accidents that they could apparently avert and claim bounties on. Well, said Keltham, in that case, he was going right back to taking another 15 seconds to strip off his super expensive clothes, if the child didn't look like it was literally right about to drown. And if society didn't like that, it was society's job to solve that thing with the master criminals. Though he'd maybe modify that if they were in a possible true death situation, because a true life is worth a huge number of labour hours, and that part did feel like some bit of decision theory would say that everyone would be wealthier, if everyone would sacrifice small amounts of wealth to save huge amounts of somebody else's wealth, if that happened unpredictably to people, and if society was also that incompetent at setting up proper reimbursements. Though if it was like that in real life instead of the least convenient possible world, it would mean that civilization was terrible at coordination and it was time to overthrow governance and start over. This time, the smarter kids did not succeed in pushing Keltham away from his position, and after a few more minutes the watcher called a halt to it and told the assembled children that they had been brought here today to learn an important lesson from Keltham about self-integrity. Keltham is being coherent, said the watcher. Keltham's decision is a valid one, given his own utility function, said the watcher. You were wrong to try to talk him into thinking that he was making an objective error. It's easy for you to say you'd save the child, said the watcher, when you're not really there, when you don't actually have to make the sacrifice of what you spent so many hours labouring to obtain. And would you all please note how none of you even considered about whether or not to spend a quarter minute stripping off your clothes, or whether to try to bill the child's parents' insurance, because you were too busy showing off how moral you were, and how willing to make sacrifices. Maybe you would decide not to do it, if the fifteen seconds were too costly. And then, any time you spent thinking about it, would also have been costly. And in that sense, it might make more sense given your own utility functions, unlike Keltham's, to rush ahead without taking the time to think, let alone the time to strip off your expensive, fragile clothes. But labour does have value, along with a child's life, and it is not incoherent or stupid for Keltham to weigh that too, especially given his own utility function. So, said the watcher, Keltham did have enough dignity by that point in his life not to rub it in or say told you so to the other children, as this would have distracted them from the process of updating. The watcher spoke on then about how most people have selfish and unselfish parts, not selfish and unselfish components in their utility function, but parts of themselves in some less law-aspiring way than that. 
something with a utility function, if it values an apple 1% more than an orange, if offered a million apple or orange choices, will choose a million apples and zero oranges. The division within most people into selfish and unselfish components is not like that. You cannot feed it all with unselfish choices, whatever the ratio. Not unless you are a keeper, maybe, who has made yourself sharper and more coherent, or maybe not even then. Who knows? For, it was said in another place, it is hazardous to non-keepers to know too much about exactly how keepers think. It is dangerous to believe, said the watcher, that you get extra virtue points the more that you let your altruistic part hammer down the selfish part. If you were older, said the watcher, if you were more able to dissect thoughts into their parts and catalogue their effects, you would have noticed at once how this whole parable of the drowning child was set to crush down the selfish part of you, to make it look like you would be invalid and shameful and harmful, to others if the selfish part of you won because you're meant to think people don't need expensive clothing, although somebody who spent a lot on expensive clothing clearly has some use for it or some part of themselves that desires it quite strongly. It is a parable calculated to set at odds two pieces of yourself, said the watcher, and your flaw is not that you made the wrong choice between the two pieces. It was that you hammered one of those pieces down. Even though with a bit more thought, you could have at least seen the options for being that piece of yourself too, and not too expensively. And much more importantly, said the watcher, you failed to understand and notice a kind of outside assault on your internal integrity. You did not notice how this parable was setting up two pieces of yourself at odds, so that you could not be both at once, and arranging for one of them to hammer down the other in a way that would leave it feeling small and injured and unable to speak in its own defence. If I'd actually wanted you to twist yourselves up and burn yourselves out around this, said the watcher, I could have designed an adversarial lecture that would have driven everybody in this room halfway crazy, except for Keltham. He's not just immune because he's an agent with a slightly different utility function. He's immune because he instinctively doesn't switch off a kind of self-integrity that everyone else in this class needs to learn to not switch off so easily. It was a proud day for Keltum, and a formative one, that Dathilan had acknowledged that the alien in their midst might have his uses. Like making it slightly easier to demonstrate a useful children's lesson for a class full of the smarter and more altruistic kids who would actually grow up to matter. But even so, there's a difference between growing up in a world that has no place for you and no use for you and respects nothing about you, versus a world which has a place for you and some use for you, and never really actually admits you can get some things right a little faster. Keltham doesn't review all that in his mind. There isn't enough time left on the owl's wisdom for that. The other thing he sees, from up here, is the point that his mind was put together the way it is, including the part where he's a kid, who doesn't have to rush down the path to stare at things, like the truth, that he couldn't have made a difference in Dathilan, and including the part where his contribution to diversity is pursuing the way of being selfish, and the things that selfish people can see faster than others, his whole self was put together, based on the assumption that he's in Dathilan, where, if Keltham is like that, terrible things won't happen to him or to other people. Golarion isn't Dath Elan. His entire self and personality and emotional balance was assembled around beliefs that might not still be true. Probably aren't true. Keltham doesn't try to make any big decisions right now. He shouldn't. That's not what you do when you're on a new mind-affecting drug that is promising all kinds of startling revelations about yourself and what a foolish wrong person you've been. But it's something that he needs to think about after the spell wears off. 
Drowning child, Keltham writes on the paper. Sorry. The spell doesn't wear off immediately after he writes it, because reality isn't dramatic like that. He spends the remaining time looking around himself for other hidden thoughts instead, because that is the sensible thing to do. And when your wisdom goes up by two local standard deviations, doing the sensible thing has a greater intuitive force because you can actually see how it is sensible and why. And then the spell wears off. He spends a while just breathing evenly, trying to absorb the full force of the blow he's taken, which is also a recommended procedure. Flowers for mouse, he thinks, and doesn't bother to write it on the paper because it's not a message from the wiser Keltham, and he doesn't even really feel that way. It's just his brain completing a cliché. They also say you're not supposed to throw away and revise your entire personality at once. And he is still himself. He is still Keltham. He is not an average Dathilani carrying out a LARP assignment of being more selfish than average. He is actually the person who didn't need to be taught self-integrity and who wanted to be paid for helping somebody else. If he decides to change things, it will have to be built around who Keltham is, a person who is not an average Dathilani. And an average Dathilani would have to make changes too, if they were here. Only a keeper is supposed to be built out of pure, sharp, coherent abstractions that could walk from one world to another and not need to change their clothes along the way. The part of himself that's terrified he's going to suddenly admit that everything he holds dear was a factual mistake and turn himself into an average Dathilani in Dathilan is probably right to be terrified in some ways, because in many particular dimensions, that's a kind of decision that his wiser self left open as a possibility and he can't unsee or unremember things, he should have been too young and stupid to see. But he is not supposed to turn into an average Dathilani in Dathilan. He needs to be Keltham and Galarian. Why didn't they warn him? Because people in Galarian get Owl's wisdom cast on them once every six months, and they've never experienced what it's like to have gone your whole life without Owl's wisdom. Somehow Keltham doesn't think that's it. It's a piece of... something wrong something he doesn't know, something he believes that's false, about this entire situation, this entire world. People not quite behaving like obvious models say they should, or they just have so little internal stuff that is actually powered by self-reflection that not very much happens to them when they suddenly get amplified reflection. No, that also feels like one of those weird excuses that Keltham was coming up with inside, to dismiss puzzle pieces. Keltham does feel annoyed on some level, injured even, that there weren't more warning signs. He thought he was getting a perception boost, or maybe the equivalent of plus zero. One SD at some innate mental quality, not this. Or, well, no, he didn't have that much of a model. He didn't really think about it at all. He didn't ask, because he was still mentally living in a world where everything that can hit you really hard has a clearly attached warning sign that civilization put there. But it's also not the sort of thing that you should just allow to happen if you are running a massive complicated scam on the alien visitor. Unless you figure that you can't really stop him from casting Owl's wisdom on himself, so you might as well just let it happen. They could have told him it would only last ten seconds, and then sneakily hit him with a dispel magic. He knows that's a standard magic. It was in the books. Keltham can feel that he's thinking little dissonant pieces of thoughts grinding against themselves, and he knows that if he had Owl's wisdom back, he would be able to see how and why they were grinding against themselves and sort them out much more easily. Maybe if he casts this spell on himself once per day, and practices thinking the way he practiced cantrips, he'll be able to... Well, 
turn into a more keeper-like version of himself. If he wants that, well, no, he's pretty sure he doesn't want that, if he chooses it anyways. There is something dangerous, Keltham thinks, about having a sense of perspective if too much of it comes on too quickly. There is seeing yourself, and the shadow of everything you've done, from the perspective where it is smaller and stupider, even the parts of you that provided all of your drive and your will and your sense of enjoyment in life, maybe not as ill things in themselves, but arranged stupidly, and with no better way to arrange them being obvious, as yet, because you were only wiser for something less than eight minutes, of which you spent half that time practicing spellcasting. He is, not looking forwards as much to his date with Carissa tonight as he was an hour ago because he's looked back and reflected on himself, and on the whole headlong rush forwards that is a defining quality of mad investor chaos. And now he is, in fact, thinking questioning thoughts about whether it is really in his own long-term self-interest. Or yes, the interest of a bunch of drowning children that he does care about literally at all, even if he wants to be paid for saving them. For him to prioritize having sex with his research harem as one of his top goals on his second day in another universe. Should he actually be hesitant about that? It doesn't make sense, does it? He should not, in the face of this shock, have suddenly turned into a standard Dathilani. He is still himself. He should still have the parts of himself that are hyped for a date with Carissa. Being hit with a temporary spell should not have changed those internal parts and if now his self is in a weird internal state of strife that prevents him from ever having any fun again, then he is pretty sure a keeper would tell him that this is not the optimal way to get smashed and rearranged by a temporary reflectivity-increasing mind-affecting drug. There's a lot to be said for trying to snap out of this and go back to his normal, and then only change one piece of himself at a time from there, in response to new facts about Galerion as he actually learns them, because Keltham has not pre-cached any other sensibly configured ways to be. That sounds to Keltham like the sort of standard advice that a keeper would give you about what to do if you've had an overly large epiphany, especially one induced by a temporary state of perception you can't go back and access again. Keltham continues to sit and think for a time. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated.